this morning, I wanted to, to mention how I was encouraged by one of the brothers that I graduated from seminary with. He ministers at a church in Shingle Springs, Gold Country Baptist Church, and he uh, just sent me a text message just asking how he could pray for me. I thought, well, these, they, and to pray for our whole church. So there's people out in Shingle Springs that prayed for all of us this morning. And I thought, well, if they're going to pray for us once, I better go big on my request. So I said, pray that this would be my best sermon ever. <laughs> I said, pray that this would be the most fruitful sermon that I've ever preached. Pray that it would be uh, repeated in the lives of the people who would hear it. Pray that sinners would be saved, that saints would be sanctified, and Christ would be glorified. So I anticipate the Lord answering those prayers according to his will, as those are things that are indeed according to his will. This morning we're going to have a message on preparing for Exodus. This is a message that helps to prepare us to read and study Exodus together on the few times that I get to preach. I plan to go through the book of Exodus here as I've been teaching on it in more detail in the Sunday school class that I have in the morning. Within my last year of seminary, one of the great desires that I had was to grow in understanding the Bible as a whole. Uh, some of this was, had come out from recognizing, you know, mostly what I knew in the Bible was Paul's epistles. Uh, I didn't know that there was an Old Testament. I say that jesting, but... Uh, there was a lot that I didn't know that, that was there in the, the largest portion of the Bible. And I remember a preacher named Paul Washer who came to visit us and uh, in Paul Washer type fashion overstated his point and said, when you men leave seminary, I want you to know that you know nothing. He says, the only thing you have is a bunch of tools that have been put in a toolbox. You're still trying to figure out how to use them. And... I took that counsel from him and just said, all right, I know nothing. <laughs> I have some tools in a toolbox. I want to know the Bible as a whole, and I'm going to go somewhere after I graduate, and I'm going to teach something. So what am I going to do? I thought, well, I wasn't born yesterday. Maybe I should just start in the beginning. And so before I ever knew that I was even going to come and minister here at Foothill Christian Fellowship, I started studying to preach Genesis. So when people would ask me, well, what are you going to do after you graduate? And I would just say, I'm going to preach Genesis somewhere. <laughs> By the grace of God, I, I did that. I preached through uh, all of Genesis, and after I finished that, I had to decide where I was going to go next. And it made sense to go to Exodus. And as we've continued on in Exodus in our Sunday school class, we're in, an, in chapter 7 there right now. Today, within the whole congregation, I want to share some of the fruit of that study and helping you to grow in your knowledge of uh, the God of the Exodus. So as we begin in that, let's pray together. Our gracious Lord, we pray that your word would be preached clearly and accurately that it would, it, it, it would it excite our hearts, that we would see who you are and how you work in the world, that you would strengthen our hope in you, that we would love you more, that we would 
worship you more deeply as we seek to grow in the knowledge of you and your grace. Amen. Exodus is epic, and it's better than any movie that you've seen about the Exodus. In fact, as I started into it, I wish that I had never seen any movies about Exodus because I have to undo all of that stuff in my mind. Exodus is an epic book that is about knowing God, about knowing the one true God, the God who delivers, the God who instructs, and the God who is present with his people. Exodus is a gospel book from the missionary heart of God. It is the gospel according to Moses, part two. It's about knowing God and making him known to the nations. It's a book about the deliverer and his deliverance, his law, instruction, and his presence with his people. It's about missions, evangelism, and discipleship, and the God who has all authority and is with us to the end of the age to carry out that evangelism, discipleship, ministry of immersing people into the only name under heaven by which men must be saved. Why study the book of Exodus? Exodus is the cornerstone of all theology. In a sense, if you understand Exodus, you will have worked out almost all of your systematic theology. You think about that. I think we still have a copy of this large white book on the book spinner called Biblical Doctrine, edited by MacArthur and Mayhew, and I often tell you, it's a devotional book. You know, studying systematic theology is how we grow in knowing God and enjoying Him and knowing how to live for Him as well. If you study Exodus, you're going to build out all the pieces of theology which Scripture gives us. One of those is how Exodus reveals God's name. Uh, Exodus is theology proper 101. It's your basic starting point and foundation for really understanding the character of God. Which he reveals himself in this book is, I am who I am. Or, I am Yahweh. And when we get there, I'll talk a little bit more about why I say Yahweh instead of Lord, so you don't have to be perplexed about that forever. Exodus reveals God's name. It's the foundation for understanding God's name, his nature, his character, which name doesn't just mean the sound of his name, but name equals nature. It's about who he is and what he's like, and that's built out in Exodus. If you don't know what Exodus teaches about God, you'll be missing something in your understanding of who God is and what he does. Exodus also teaches us about God's word. Everything in creation exists because of God's word, and it's centered around his word. All things work according to the counsel of his will to reveal who he is, his glory, and it's also for the salvation of his people. If you don't know what Exodus teaches about God's word, you'll lack the hope that it gives and the confidence that it gives you in the God of the Exodus. Exodus also shows us God's salvation plan being carried out. Where Genesis establishes the pieces of the plan, Exodus shows us the pieces in motion. It goes from deliverance being 
needed and planned out in Genesis to deliverance being executed. In Genesis, you get the train tracks and the pieces of the train set on those train tracks. But in Exodus, the coals are ignited and the train starts picking up pace. Exodus lays out the salvation plan of lamb, blood, circumcision, Passover, unleavened bread, death and resurrection. And all of these things that Jesus so wonderfully executes in his first coming. If you turn over in your Bible to Luke chapter 9, verse 30, I want to show you something there. In Luke 9, verse 30 and 31. In Luke chapter 9, this is the event of Jesus' transfiguration. And in verses 30 and 31, it says, And behold, two men were talking with him. They were Moses, who was the author of Exodus, and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to fulfill at Jerusalem. Some of you might have in your Bible translation that word departure right there. There will be a little footnote, and you might look down, and it will say this comes from the Greek word exodus. It's like, what was Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah about? His exodus. And he says, but it was also something he was about to fulfill when he went to Jerusalem. Because the exodus is about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ ultimately. If you were at the Good Friday service, you'll remember how we talked about three different lamb suppers in the Bible that tie into three different exoduses in the Bible. How the Passover was about the people exodusing out of Egypt, the Lord's Supper being about uh, Egypt exiting out of their hearts so that they didn't love the world. It was dealing with their, the heart sin problem and the marriage supper of the Lamb and the book of Revelation, which is about getting the Egypt enemy out of Egypt land, God taking back what was stolen and giving it to his people. Put another way, the first exodus, it provides a horizontal salvation. They move from one location to another. But in that happening, God also revealed that they needed a vertical salvation to happen. They needed hearts that were restored to knowing him and worshiping him. And that horizontal paired with that vertical ends up meeting at the cross of Christ where Christ was crucified to crush all the enemies in the heart and in the land. Exodus also gives us a theology of man and sin. It teaches us why we exist, which is to know him and to make him known and to enjoy him forever. It teaches us about God's sovereignty and man's accountability. It teaches us a doctrine of slavery, a slavery that is from and to, of man being delivered from slavery to sin to a slavery to righteousness. And God not only delivers his people, but he also instructs his people. So Exodus teaches us about God's law instruction. I pair those words together because when we often hear the word law we think about rules but the word is not used in that way in scripture it's talking about God's law or Torah 
instruction. That's God's law instruction. God is the God who graciously not only delivers his people, but he delivers them to live by his gracious law instruction. He saves them out of death into life and then teaches them how to live. If you don't understand what Exodus teaches about God's law, you'll lack understanding the grace of the law and its gospel guidance. Exodus also builds a biblical worldview about Satan and his deceitful work in the world. It teaches us that God is God and that the devil is God's devil. He can only do what God has ordained. And Satan's opposition to God's purpose can only serve God's purpose. It teaches us that Satan seeks to counterfeit everything that God is and does in creation. To be a counterfeit creator and a counterfeit lawgiver. So that people will think and live according to the image of the beast rather than the image of God. If you don't know Exodus, you'll lack being able to discern what's going on in the world today and be more susceptible to Satan's counterfeits and deceit because the battle of today is the battle of yesterday. It's God's truth versus Satan's lies. There's one truth, but there's many lies. Exodus not only gives us the truth about the past and today, but it also gives us an accurate understanding of the future. Exodus teaches eschatology. It teaches the study of last things. As some of you probably are aware of, because you're in Revelation class, you know that Exodus is repeated in the book of Revelation, but bigger and greater and final. I am who I am returns in the beginning of Revelation, the one who was and is and is to come. The plagues come back. The serpent is still pursuing the seed of the woman, and the serpent and his family are destroyed, and the king of kings and his family are delivered finally and forever. If you understand Exodus, Revelation will make more sense to you, and your hope in the coming king will develop and build and increase. Exodus is the cornerstone of theology. If you understand Exodus, you will have built out the foundation of systematic theology in your mind because it's about the God who is God, the only one true God to whom nobody can compare, the God who speaks and acts because he's the God who is not only creator, but he's also relational with his creation. He's the God who brings salvation through judgment. The God who delivers by destroying. He's the God who made all things and he controls all things, even the invisible things and even evil. He's the God who graciously gives his law instruction. He not only protects us and provides for us, he also guides us. He is the God who is with us, who fights for us, and he converts evil into good. And his presence, as you know, it returns in the book of Exodus in the tabernacle for the first time since the Garden of Eden. 
And it returns in the tabernacle, which happens to be a model of the Garden of Eden, where God's presence dwelt with man. And that's meant to teach us we can go back into God's presence. We can go back into that relationship with God in his land as his people enjoying his blessing. This is pictured in the tabernacle in Exodus, later in scripture in the temple, and then Jesus, then the church, and then the future day when there is no temple because everything is temple again. Eden regained. When the knowledge of the glory of God fills the whole earth once again. As we prepare to study the book of Exodus, we're also preparing ourselves for the greater and final exodus that is to come. As we prepare for exodus, there's some things that I want to talk to you about that are going to help you to prepare to read this book. One of them is understanding Jesus' Bible, and the other one is how to read narrative so that we can get the most out of our reading and studying of exodus. When you came in, this morning, the ushers probably handled you some of our discussion questions for application in our home fellowship groups. On the back of there, I provided a little chart for you there that I want to explain to you. And as we approach that, I want you to turn over to Luke 24:44 in your Bible to see something there. I'll turn to Luke 24:44 as we consider. Jesus's Bible. Because in Luke 24, 44, Jesus tells us something about his Bible. Luke 24, verse 44, reads, Now he said to them, These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses... And the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Here Jesus is giving you the three major divisions of his Bible. Which you can see that on the chart that I provided for you. It's the law, the prophets, and the writings. Which he refers to here as the Psalms. With Psalms being the, the biggest book in the writings. Jesus' Bible was the Hebrew Bible which you probably know that that is the Tanakh. That's that funny word that I put in there. And the, where it says Jesus' Bible, in parentheses, there's the Tanakh, which is an acronym, T-N-K, that stands for the Torah, the Nevaim, and the Ketavim, which is, in English, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And each of these three major divisions in Jesus' Bible have a specific purpose. And I wrote that out in the chart there. The, the law section there is where God establishes his law. That's where the law is established. It's God's foundational instruction, which teaches us that God is sovereign over everything. And he's the one who instructs everything in his creation. Now moving over to the middle of that chart in the prophets, this is where the law is enforced. And we learn that God is Savior. You need to turn to him to be saved. And it was the prophets who gave that message. 
the prophets preached and prayed the law. The book of Moses was their Bible. It was what their sermons came from. It was where uh, their instruction and preaching and their praying came from. But now when you come to the writings, this is where you see God's law enjoyed. That's the major point of this section, to teach that God is not only sovereign and savior, but he's the satisfier. And it's focused on a right response to the king of creation. And that right response is to worship the king. That's the focus of the writings. This is important to know because the structure of the Bible helps you to interpret the Bible. So when you start reading one of these books in the Old Testament, you're like, well, where does it fit? Is it law and its foundational instruction? Am I reading the prophets who are preaching the law, which means I would need to know what the law says so I could know what they were preaching about, or the writings, which is showing me this is how I respond to God's word. You know, I, I worship him. I, I pray to him. I look to him for guidance. You know, I, I rejoice in him. I repent to him. I look to him as my help and my hope. Understanding the uniqueness of these parts of the Bible help you understand the whole Bible. So which section is the book of Exodus found in as we look at these sections of law, prophets, and writings? Exodus is found in the law, which establishes God's foundational instruction and that he is the only sovereign. But the instruction in Exodus comes to us in a different literary genre than Ephesians, for example. It's a narrative which is different than an epistle or a letter. So I want to give you some basic handholds for reading a narrative as we continue. So how do you read narrative? Well, my first point is this, not like an epistle. You don't read a narrative like an epistle. Epistles are unique in that there's, these are the two elements of an epistle, doctrine and practice. Okay? And all of these things uh, are built into the discussion questions, by the way. You're like, oh no, what if I don't write down those two words? I put them in the questions to help you remember. So you can think about the Ephesians, for example. The first three chapters are about the doctrine of the church's position in Christ. And then the last three chapters are about the practice of the church's position in Christ. That's how epistles work. They give you doctrine and practice. Epistles are the learn and do books. Epistles are the learn and do books of the Bible. But you know that it can be hard to learn and do some things without seeing it done somehow. You need uh, an example. That's where narrative comes in. Where epistles are structured around doctrine and practice, narratives are structured around plot and perspective. So two key words in thinking through reading a narrative are plot and perspective. And where epistles are the learn and do books, uh, narrative is the come and see books of the Bible. They show you how it's done. They show you who God is and how he works and how people interact with him and respond to him. So the two important parts you want to know about narratives is plot and perspective and that they're the come and see books. We'll talk a little bit about plot in a narrative. In a plot, this involves 
structure. There's a structure to these narratives. In Genesis, the structure is centered around the statement, these are the generations of, these are the generations of, these are the generations of. And each one of those sections makes a certain point and contributes to the book as a whole. In the plot, it also shows you people. It shows you people like Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But in showing you people, it also shows you places within the plot. Places like Eden, east of Eden, which is where we live. The Tower of Babel, Canaan, Egypt. And in all of this, it shows you God at work and his world and people and places. And you get to come and see him at work, which shows you a perspective to give you a perspective. Narrative shows you a perspective to give you perspective. Let's talk a little, a little bit about that perspective. You could think of the biblical author uh, like a cameraman. Sometimes he zooms out and he gives you a broad look of something, like the, the life of Joseph. It's a whole bunch of chapters, it's really big, and it's really broad. But in the beginning and the end of the Joseph narrative, the cameraman zooms in on this guy named Judah. You're like, well, why does he zoom in on Judah at the beginning and at the end? Well, the, the cameraman, Bible author, wants you to come and see something. He wants you to come and see an evil, selfish Judah in the beginning, who later becomes a, a good, sacrificial Judah at the end. The author cameraman wants you to say, what happened to that guy? How did he go from selfish to sacrificial? How did he go from cowardly to kingly? The author shows you a perspective to give you a perspective, which is the perspective seen and gained by this transformation in Judah's life. What do we learn from that? We learn God converts evil to good. Put another way, narrative gives you a worldview so that you'll know how to view the world. Narratives show you a perspective to give you a perspective. They give you a worldview by giving you a view of the world. I can remember a time when I was in high school and the starter went out on my 1980s Toyota Camry. And my dad and I hauled the car into our shop and he pointed me to the, the Haynes instruction manual. Maybe some of you know what those are. And he said, well, there's the manual, fix the car. And I started looking through this manual and these fuzzy black and white pictures and a bunch of words that I wasn't quite sure what they were referring to. And I said, Dad, could you show me what this is talking about? And then my dad showed me, here's where the starter is. That fuzzy picture, that, that thing is a bolt. <laughs> you know, take out those bolts right there. And as he showed me these things, things started to make sense to me that was in that instruction manual. The, the come and see living narrative example of my dad mechanicking helped me understand the learn and do of the car repair epistle. I needed to have both of them so that I could see things rightly. I needed the example and the instruction. 
Most of your Bible is narrative. A very small piece of it is instruction. Um, we think about this also in terms of how our life is like that as well. Most of our life is narrative. And there's some instruction built into that as well that guides the larger narrative of our existence. Perhaps there's more narrative in the Bible than instruction because that's just how life works. You think about how the, the Christian life is more caught than taught in a lot of ways. Uh, you can think about it, how there's a lot of Christians who, uh, they live better than they could explain in words. Uh, maybe they couldn't explain to you the hypostatic union of Jesus having two natures that are divine and human without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. They might not know how to explain the significance of all those words, but their life shows that they know the God of the word. And it's one thing to, to know the book, and it's another to know the God of the book. There's a lot of Christians who know better than they live. They might be able to translate the hypostatic union into plain language, but that truth hasn't translated into a changed life in them which actually demonstrates they haven't learned as they ought to learn. Now, some of you are thinking about, you know, this preacher, he's mentioned things like systematic theology and growing in the knowledge of the Bible. And I know that in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul said, knowledge puffs up. If I start learning theology, am I going to become uh, arrogant and uh, rude to people who have less knowledge than me? We're not going to go to 1 Corinthians 8 right now, but I commend to you to write that down in your notes and to read it in context where Paul uses this phrase. He says, knowledge puffs up. If you read that in the ESV, there's quotes around that word knowledge. It was knowledge according to the Corinthians' definition of knowledge that puffed up. It was because they were ignorant of certain things that they were arrogant about certain things. What he was teaching them is that Corinthian knowledge puffs up, but biblical knowledge humbles. And he was seeking to give them biblical knowledge so that they would be humbled by it and grow in humility and love toward God and others. So don't be afraid of the big white devotional book known as Biblical Doctrine or to, to give yourself to straining in the exercise to study and know God's word. Uh, it'll help you to know your God and how to live for God as you humble yourself to be humbled by his word. When you think about uh, the lived examples of other Christians that you've had around you and also those who instruct you in God's word, what do you think has had a more powerful impact on your life? Was it the spoken articulation of God's truth or was it the lived articulation of God's truth that had the most influence on you? Well, instead of giving you my opinion about it, I would like to just give you a, a Bible verse about it, which comes from what Jeff Campbell preached on a while back on 1 Timothy 4.16. You might remember when Jeff preached, he preached in 1 Timothy 4.16, pay, pay close attention to yourself 
and through your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Now, if this text communicates uh, any priority, it's in paying attention to how you live above what you teach, because your life teaches something. You want to have deeds and words combined together. Uh, Our lives should be walking sermon illustrations, uh, examples of the truth that we hear preached. And certainly we see that Timothy had an example of this in Paul. He could come and see Paul's life so that he could teach and live God's word. When we read a narrative plot, we see God's work and God's world. We are shown a perspective which gives us a worldview, and it's the worldview that God desires us to have. When we read the living narrative of the living God, we're swept up into the experience of who he is and what he does. We don't just learn about a relationship with God, we're brought into the experience of the relationship of the God who is the same yesterday and those Bible narratives from a long time ago, today and forever. And the message that was given to the original audience is the same message to us today. So when we learn what he intended to say then, is still the same thing that he intends to say now. It's timeless truth. And if we're going to understand the plot and perspective of Exodus, which we're seeking to prepare for that, if we're going to understand the plot and perspective of Exodus, we're going to need to start in the beginning. So turn with me to Genesis 1, 26. As we go through some foundational Bible verses which are going to help us understand Exodus when we really begin into Exodus in a couple of weeks, we're going to turn to Genesis 1.26 and come and see God's work and God's world in Genesis as we prepare for Exodus. Genesis 1.26-28 reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth And subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. Here in this text, we see God's creation purpose. God's creation purpose is to know God and to fill the earth with the knowledge of God. Well, if that's the purpose, if the purpose is to fill the earth with the knowledge of God, well, what's the goal of that? Well, the goal is seen in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And join me in looking at those together. Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their host. 
And on the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because on it he rested from all his work, which God had created in making it. Here we have creation's goal. Creation's goal is God's rest. It's existing, living in, and enjoying God in who he is and what he does. God's rest is the enjoyment of who he is and what he does. So the purpose is to know God and to enjoy him forever. Combining the purpose and goal together, Scripture here teaches us that it's to know God and enjoy him forever and with the earth filled with the knowledge of him. You might also note that this day has no evening or morning on it because it is an eternal day. But as we know, God's people fell out of God's rest. Which makes us wonder, how now can God carry out his creation purpose of filling the earth with the knowledge of him and how can he restore his people back into his place How can he bring people back into his rest? Well, that's found in Genesis 3, 14 to 15. If you turn over there, we're going to look at Genesis 3, 14 to 15. Genesis 3, 14 to 15 reads, And Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle. More than every beast of the field, on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Here we read that the fall-causing serpent will be crushed by the curse-reversing seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent will be fatally crushed by the seed of the woman who will only be temporarily wounded in his destroying, delivering plan. Here we see that there's only two families on the earth, that of the serpent and that of the woman. The rest of the Bible is about Genesis 3.15. If your neighbor has not circled Genesis 3.15 in their Bible, you could love your neighbor by circling Genesis 3.15 in their Bible for them. It's also our memory verse for the week and was the verse that we put up on the screen before the service just to emphasize the importance of it. Now you know that in children's Sunday school, if you grew up going to Sunday school as a child, that the answer that you give to every question is Jesus. But when you grow up and you come into adult Sunday school, the answer now is Genesis 3.15. This verse is that significant. Try it out in your Sunday school class and you'll see how it works. These verses here in in Scripture, they give us perspective on ourselves. This plot gives you perspective on yourself. You're either in Satan's family or in God's family. There is no in-between neutral ground that you can exist on. 
You're either for God or against God. You're either going to be delivered by him or destroyed by him. But we also need to remember that God is in the business of redeeming people, which is why he gives this Genesis 3.15 seed promise. God's in the business of redeeming people from Satan's family into his family. And the reason that you exist is to, to know this redeeming God and to make him known. But as we know in this section of scripture, sin separates that relationship with God of knowing him and making him known. But it's only through this promised seed of the woman that you can be restored to him. Which, as you know, this goes on to connect to Jesus. He ends up being that promised seed who was planted in that new tomb a long time ago on the third day to form and fill this thing that's called the church. He is the God who can make the old new and the lost found. This plot also gives us perspective on the world that you live in. As you read about history throughout scripture and beyond, uh, everybody's in one of these families. People that you read about, be it Pharaoh in Exodus or King Herod later in history or uh, even men from back in the 20th century or men today, they're either of their father the devil or their father God. You want to keep that in mind as you read scripture to think about whose family is this person in. But you also want to evaluate the world that you live in in that way as well. Is this person living in Satan's family or God's family? And when I see them rightly, that's going to help me to give them the correct message from God's word to this person that lives in God's world. As you know, genealogies are a big deal in the Bible, and they really center around what's happening here in Genesis 3.15, this cosmic battle concerning genealogy and geography. The Bible is about, very much about genealogy and geography. And this battle concerning man and land and whose command will be followed continues. We probably, in contemporary discussion, talk about these sort of concepts as family rights, property rights, and who we believe gives those rights. But how do we know that from this point that God's plan for a new creation and a new humanity is not going to be thwarted? How do we know that he's really going to be able to bring this seed of the woman about and, and fix everything? And does the fall change God's creation purpose? So since it, didn't seem, it doesn't seem like it's worked out, does that mean he's going to move to plan B or is everything always plan A? Does his creation purpose and goal still stand? To answer that question, I'll have you turn to Genesis chapter 9. And in this chapter, I'll just note a few verses and would encourage you to really read this chapter and study it on your own. But in answering the question, does God's creation purpose of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with the knowledge of him, does it continue? We read the answer in chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons after the fall and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God says, my creation purpose never got messed up. Everything's still plan A, never going to be a plan B. Everything's moving forward exactly as planned. 
And verse 7, this is repeated again. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Swarm on the earth and multiply in it. Well, how is this relationship going to carry out? Well, as we think about this, God's creation purpose now has a a missionary element to it. Uh, Not everybody is about God's fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth sort of plan. Uh, Some people are going to have to be brought into that. They're going to need to be brought into the ark so that they're not judged in uh, God's judgment for not having entered into his purpose and goal for his creation. What's been lost from God's rest needs to be restored into God's rest. So God tells the man who has named rest, that's Noah, to continue God's plan, what he had from the beginning. But how is God going to mediate that creation purpose? He does it through covenant. Here in this portion of the Bible, we have what some refer to as the Noahic creation covenant. If you look at verse 8, you read, Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. So here, God cuts a covenant. So how can we be sure that the promised seed will bring us into the promised land and into God's promised rest if things like global floods happen? You going to see the problem here? Uh, If things like that are happening, how do we know that this plan of entering into God's rest is really going to carry out? Well, it's going to be through covenant. And what's significant about the Noahic creation covenant is this. It's the platform whereby God will preserve his creation into new creation rest. It's the platform. You could think of the Noahic creation covenant like the tracks for God's salvation train. And the company name for this railroad is Rest for Restless Hearts Railroad. Its motto is everybody needs God's rest. Its catchphrase is it's going to rain. Its sales pitch is ride or die. If you don't get into God's means of salvation, you will be under his judgment. God's missionary creation purpose is preserved on the platform of the Noahic creation covenant. God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But as we continue to read this story, we found out some of those sons said no. You see that when you turn to Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, we have the story of the Tower of Babel. You might write this down in your notes to read over this and think about it a bit later. This is a story that I'm sure that you're familiar with. This is where you see the serpent family, the Tower of Babel family. The serpent family is anti-fruitful, anti-multiply, anti-filling the earth with God's name. As it says here, now the whole earth had the same language and the same words, and it happened as they sojourned east 
which when people keep going further east, it's always bad, by the way, uh, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there, which the king who was ruling at this time, you read, his name was Nimrod, which is a fitting name for the guy. Anyways, it says, Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. So it's like this plan, there's always some sort of building program uh, wrapped up that Satan's family is trying to do that's in opposition to God's kingdom building program. And in verse 4, it says, They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. See, they wanted a name for themselves, not for God. And they said, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. You see the rebellion there. They're supposed, they're supposed to fill the whole earth. And they say, we will not be scattered. We're building a tower here, and we're coming after you. So these people are fascinated with their own building program and being in one place for their own name. They wanted unity without diversity. They were unified against God's creation purpose, but God diversified them. So you continue in this plan, you find they gathered to rebel, but God scattered them in judgment. He scattered the people who we would call the Babylonians later in judgment, showing that their purpose can't thwart his purpose, but rather it can only serve God's creation purpose. So here's what happens here. Right before this, you read what we call the table of the nations. There happens to be 70 of them. I'll mention why that's important later. But what happens in their trying to rebel against God, that God actually carries out his missionary purpose in creation by making the nations and then extending that salvation plan out to the nations that he would scatter throughout the whole globe to bring people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to bow to professing that he alone is Lord. Now, at this point in Scripture, the, the Babylonians are scattered throughout the whole earth. Now, at this point in history still, the Babylonians are still scattered throughout the whole earth. And their family head is still directing them. But he's directing them to be a global superpower, which is going to tie into what's happening with Egypt and Pharaoh seeking to be a global superpower. But God's going to use one nation, not the nation of Egypt or Babylon, but it's going to be the nation of Israel to bring blessing to all nations. And as usual, this plan always funnels down to one guy. This one guy, as we continue in Genesis, is found in Genesis chapter 12. This is another significant chapter in the Bible, especially the first three verses that once they're said, everything is about these verses. Genesis 12, 1 to 3 reads, And Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your land and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Here we see the elements of God's restoring what was lost in Eden. What was lost was land, the family seed, and blessing. 
And now we see Abram being called to go from one land to another, from one family into the seed family, to be turned into a nation which will bring blessing to all nations. And that God will bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. God's going to use this one old man to make one new nation that will bless all the families of the earth. The major elements of this covenant that God's going to establish, this is often referred to as the Abrahamic Patriarch Covenant, and the major elements are land, seed, blessing. For the rest of the time in the Bible, you want to keep up with land, seed, blessing. Because these elements make up the train cars that are on the train tracks of the Noahic creation covenant. You could think of these train cars as the Land Seed Blessing Express. And the Land Seed Blessing Express rides on the Rest for Restless Hearts Railroad. God officially cuts this covenant with Abram in Genesis 15, which is where we're going to go next together to learn about what will happen with this great nation, which will come from Abram, who becomes Abraham, as you know. Turn to Genesis 15, we're going to start in verse 12. And here I want you to listen for the Exodus prophecy. Genesis 15, verse 12. Now it happened that when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Then God said to Abram, Know for certain that your seed will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years But I will also judge the nation to whom they are enslaved. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So how does the land seed blessing thing develop here? Well, with the seed in a land that's not theirs, enslaved for 400 years. This is probably not how you would have planned it out. It's probably not quite what you would expect the plan to be. But it is what God ordained. God ordained the Exodus prophecy. And it can't be cut short at 300 years, and it can't go long into year 401. Well, why all of this? Why have them be enslaved and why have it last so long god wants to reveal something about himself he wants to reveal that when he that when he, something about himself when he judges the nation to whom they are enslaved and afterward they come out with many possessions he wants to reveal that he is sovereign he has a right to do what he wants with what is his He also wants to reveal he knows all things, and he does all things perfectly. He's in control of all things. He wants to reveal that he sets the timeline. God is not responding to the timeline. God is never responding to anything. He has ordained everything and is controlling everything. He's also revealing here that affliction is part of his plan. It's not an accident along the way. He also wants to reveal that he's patient with rebels. 
Even for four generations, he's patient with rebels while he's calling them to repentance. He wants to reveal that he's a judge who judges righteously. He doesn't judge them whimsically and just the weak that they send, but he's patient with them for over 400 years. And that he's a restorer of what was lost. He's a God of recompense. He's going to give back to his people what was stolen from him. When he brings about his salvation, he's going to destroy some things and deliver others and give them what was rightfully theirs. Well, eventually, as you continue on in Scripture, there are some special people who are born from Abraham's family or not so special people, however you want to look at it. They're a, a messy bunch, to be sure. But as Hebrews says, God isn't ashamed to be called their God. The covenant promise continues from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and beyond. Which we're going to skip over to Genesis 46 to see some other significant things tying into Exodus. This is Genesis chapter 46, starting in verse 1. The text reads, so Israel, you remember Jacob was renamed Israel. Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I myself will also bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes with his hand. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives and the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they took their livestock and their possessions, which they had accumulated in the land of Canaan, and they came to Egypt, Jacob and all his seed with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his seed he brought with him to Egypt. And then you read about how these 12 sons had a bunch of other sons and daughters, and this family grew. Where was God going to make Jacob a great nation? In Egypt. Now, this sounds kind of scary if you were to be hearing this and say, well, am I going to have to go there alone? No. God said to Jacob, whom he named, renamed Israel, I will go down with you to Egypt. He's never going to leave him or forsake him. The great surprise of going into Egypt is that you meet God there. But what if I die when I get there? God said to Jacob, I myself will bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes with his hand. This is death and resurrection language. And how can the patriarchs live in the land promised to them unless they're raised from the dead. Verse 8, as it picks up with the 12 sons of Israel, it's important to note they're not a nation yet, but the family is growing. And when you look at verse 27 of this chapter, 
27b, the last part of that verse, tells us all the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. See, and think about that. This is the family that's supposed to be the, the one nation that's going to, to bless all other nations. You remember how many nations were in the table of nations? 70. Now, there's 70 sons. They're going into Egypt, and God's communicating. It's all going according to plan. He's controlling everything that's happened. You can be confident in him, and your hope is in him. You can trust him. And while they're in this land, while the seed of the woman family is in this land of the seed of the serpent family, God says, I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. So you think about that. When somebody blesses these people, things go well for them. You curse them, it's going to be bad, really bad. Let's make our last stop in Genesis in the last verses of Genesis. Have you turn to Genesis 50 and verses 18 to 26, I think is what we'll read. Genesis 50, starting in verse 18. Then Joseph's brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your slaves. That's an interesting turn of events, isn't it? But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to do what has happened on this day to keep many people alive. So now, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke to their heart. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and they embalmed him. And he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Why was Joseph in Egypt? His brothers sold him into slavery. They meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And what did Joseph's brothers just become in Egypt? Slaves. They're reaping what they sowed. But what the Egyptians intend for evil, God will intend for good. But what about those who die in the land and they just greet the promises from afar? Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now, what do you think? Can these dead bones rise up and walk out of Egypt and into the promised land of Canaan? Joseph said, 
God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. God knows. God cares. Before we read the first words in the book of Exodus, I want you to listen for these things that we had talked about, to listen for God's creation purpose of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with God's missionary plan for the nations, to listen for the 70, looking for the one nation that will be a blessing to all nations. And you have to really listen for the quiet faithfulness of God continuing to carry on because it's unannounced and largely unnoticed. Let's look at Exodus and the first seven verses. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number. But Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Here you hear the echoes of be fruitful and multiply. You see God's creation purpose is continuing. God's covenant promises are continuing. They're not announced, they're just happening. Does everybody know that that's what's happening? Not everybody, there's a few to be sure. But God's Noahic creation covenant, it continues. God's Abrahamic patriarch covenant, it's continuing. The family's still growing. But as you know and are familiar with Exodus, perhaps now you're starting to see the Genesis 3.15 seed battle. We have the seed of the woman family and the land of the seed of the serpent who is going to carry on the Tower of Babel plan. There's going to be a building program. There's going to be bricks and slavery and trying to stop people from having kids and to stop them from working in their own land and being productive in their own land to stop the fruitful and multiply mission, to stop the filling the earth with the knowledge of God mission. But these things will only serve to extend God's creation purpose to the 70. God's plan for one nation to bless the nations, his blessing and his cursing. Everything in this plan has to follow the Genesis 15 Exodus prophecy. God is going to disciple and evangelize the nations through the events that are going to follow. And his salvation through judgment is going to destroy some and deliver others and restore what was lost. As we continue into Exodus 1 in a couple of weeks, Egypt is going to look like a tomb for the sons of Israel. But what you're going to find out later is that God has purposed it as a womb for the nation 
of Israel to be born from. In these things, we see especially that God is faithful. Whether people recognize it or not, he is faithful and cannot deny his faithful character. And reading these things builds our hope in him. It builds our confidence in him despite affliction, despite how things appear in the world. Exodus is a book for people who want to know God. Exodus is a book for people who don't know God. Exodus is a book about God making himself known to all of creation to build a people for himself that make him known to all of creation. It's a book about God's name, that he's a deliverer, that he's the mountaintop instructor, and that he is the one who is present with his people so that they would deliver his instruction and his name to all the nations while standing on the promises of God, which we want to remember and rejoice in as we see those things working out from Genesis to Exodus as we, Lord willing, will continue in this study in a couple of weeks together. Let's close here in prayer and our music team's going to come forward. Our gracious Lord, you are the creator of all things that created us to know you and to enjoy a relationship with you and to enjoy to enjoy the land that you have made, to enjoy how you have made things to function, to enjoy not only our relationship with you, but the relationship that we have with other people. And we look forward to the day when you fulfill all of your covenants and we no longer, nobody will any longer ever say to anybody to know you because everybody will know you. The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of you and the enjoyment of you. You will be faithful to your promises. We see that as we read the history of the past, we think of our day in the present and of your future promises, knowing that you will be faithful to do all of these things perfectly, unhindered, and well. The book of Exodus is a New Testament church book. The intent of it is echoed in Jesus' words at the end of Matthew, and I think you'll hear that as I read them in our closing. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain, which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen.